Thank you for inviting me today. So the title of my talk is Function of Facts, What are determinants and does it really matter? So I have divided my talk into three parts. In the first part, I'm gonna tell you about adipose tissue. Why are we interested in studying adipose tissue? What is the function of adipose tissue? And also how does adipose tissue become dysfunctional, leading to obesity and type two diabetes? Which are the factors that um, lead adipose tissue to become dysfunctional. Um, the second part of talk, I'm gonna uh, concentrate on different adipose tissues that we have in our body and that they have different function as well. And also what are the models we have uh, developed in our lab to study differences in function between different adipose tissue. And the third part of my talk is gonna be on fish and just telling you that basically not only humans get obese, there are animals that are getting fatter as well. So why do we want to study adipose tissue? Adipose tissue is commonly known as body fat and studies of adipose tissue are motivated by <coughs> negative consequences of obesity, both economic and medic, uh, medical in nature. So the medical consequences of obesity uh, are due to increased fat mass, which can then lead to social stigma, discrimination, sleep apnea, osteoarthritis, while metabolic changes uh, in fat cells will lead uh, often to type two diabetes, inflammation, cardiovascular disease, hypertension. When we talk about economic consequences of obesity, they can be direct or indirect. Uh, direct would then be uh, leading to higher inpatient costs, more physician visits, prescription drugs, while indirect would uh, lead to lost productivity, increased morta mortality before retirement or even early retirement. So adipose tissue is the largest organ in the human body and first and certainly the most important function of adipose tissue is to save as a safe to, to, to act as a safe store for lipids but also it provides readily mobilized sources of energy when we require it so uh, to regulate nutrients uptake storage uh, and also breakdown and release adipose tissue needs very complex coordinated um, stimuli from neural and endocrine uh, systems as well. So is adipose tissue more than just safe store for um, lipids? Recently, adipose tissue have been shown to secrete many factors called adipokines, uh, and probably you heard of uh, leptin and adiponectin, which are closely associated with insulin resistance, but adipose tissue secrete many more factors which can be both harmful and also beneficial to uh, the metabolic health of individual. So why do we have get obese? First of all, uh, the energy balance is the relationship between uh, energy uh, intake and energy expenditure. So during positive energy balance, we, weight, uh, we gain weight, and during negative energy balance, we lose weight. So what does happen to adipose tissue? In uh, positive energy balance, in order for adipose tissue to accumulate 
more uh, lipids, uh, adipose tissue expands, and uh, in, uh, during uh, negative energy balance, adipose tissue release uh, lipids in the form of fatty acids and it shrinks. So I hope I convinced you that adipose tissue is very important tissue in overall energy homeostasis. So when we are in positive uh, energy balance and an adipose tissue has to store more energy inside the cells, so how does adipose tissue do it? There are two ways. It's either to increase adipocytes, in, like increase number of cells, or expand the existing cells that are already in the tissue. There are different theories of when and how long do we produce new cells. Um, some um, researchers suggest that this happens during childhood and then we, sto we stop producing new adipocytes uh, in adolescence and then the rest of our adult life we are actually um, dealing with existing adipocytes and hoping they can ac expand to accumulate lipids. So why then does adipose tissue become dysfunctional? And probably as most of uh, you heard that adipose tissue once becomes dysfunctional leads to obesity and potentially type two diabetes. <coughs> so this is how adipose tissue look in uh, lean, normal metabolic functional adipose tissue with several uh, cells inside the tissue, including inflammatory cells, some pre-adipocytes and also some um, uh, mature adipocyte cells. But during weight gain, what happens is that we start accumulating more lipids. We also get more inflammatory cells inside the tissue. So uh, the, the, the thing is that each individual have its own capacity of how much can we expand adipocyte cells. Once this capacity uh, is overwhelmed or it, it adipose tissue cannot expand uh, further, what happens is we get impaired lipid metabolism, altered adipokine secretion, we get more infiltration of immune cells and also inflammation. But adipose tissue also needs to send lipids that cannot uh, store anymore inside the cells somewhere else, and usually this is uh, sending to other tissues like liver, pancreas, um, heart, uh, and this is when the problem starts because these tissues are not designed to store safely lipids for a long term and uh, lipids are actually uh, uh, being uh, toxic for those tissues, leading to lipotoxicity, insulin resistance, and type 2 diabetes. So what does regulate this adipose tissue dysfunction? So in our group, we are very interested in genetic factors regulating adipose tissue dysfunction but also we shouldn't forget about environmental factors as well, as well as interaction between genes and environment. So the first part of the talk, I'm gonna tell you about a gene that uh, we have recently published this work and it's uh, called, the gene is called KLF14. It is developmental transcription factor and I'm gonna tell you the role of this gene in type two diabetes. 
I'm also gonna tell you if there is a link between KLA14 adipose tissue function, obesity, and type 2 diabetes. And then in the end of the talk, I'm gonna <coughs> show you some of the functional studies we have done in order to answer some of those questions. So why are we interested, or we were interested in KLA14? Type 2 diabetes, uh, as you know, is characterized by insulin resistance, but also beta cell dysfunction, and that obesity is a strong risk factor for developing type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is also a very complex disorder. It is uh, resulting from interaction between genes and environment. And it is estimated that 30 to 70% of type 2 diabetes risk may be due to genetics. So genome-wise association studies were great and led to discovery of uh, many risk variants associated with type 2 diabetes. And I think since 2007, more than 65 genetic variants have been identified that increase type 2 diabetes risk uh, from 10 to 30%. So in 2009, uh, 2010, in paper by Voigt et al., KLA14 was also found to be a gene associated with type 2 diabetes. But interestingly, most of these risk variants uh, found through GVOS were associated with beta cell dysfunction, while KLA14 was associated with insulin resistance. And that, that's why it made, made it even more interesting for us to study it. But why do we want to study KLA14 in adipose tissue and not in some other tissues? So the Multiple Tissue Human Expression Resource Consortium found a group of highly correlated uh, SNPs, which were courting KB upstream of KLA14, to be strongly associated with expression of KLA14 in adipose tissue and not in other tissues. But KLA14 is also a transcription factor, and it does regulate many other genes involved in um, uh, different uh, functions. Uh, most of them are associated with BMI and type 2 diabetes, cholesterol, but they're also expressed in other tissues. By the end of the study, we found uh, that KLA14 uh, regulates around 400 uh, genes. So what we did then, we recruited people with, uh, from our Oxford Biobank uh, and checked the expression of KLA14 in people who are risk carriers for KLA14 and control group and showed that both SNPs found but mother consortium actually show lower expression of KLA14 uh, in a risk group compared to control. So people who had lower expression of KLA14 in adipose tissue were more associated with type 2 diabetes compared to control group. So in the beginning, I told you about adipose tissue morphology and expanding of adipocyte <laughs> size. So knowing that adipose tissue morphology is very important, what we did then, we also recruited people from Oxford Biobank, Riskalil group and uh, carriers, and also control group, and look adipose tissue histology. So what we found is that people who carry risk, uh, people with risk allele uh, had bigger adipocyte cells compared to control, 
cells and also we quantify this and indeed show that cells in risk uh, carriers were uh, significantly bigger than control groups but this was only case in females and not in, in males. We also confirmed our data in an independent cohort from Sweden where they use slightly different technique to assess adipocyte size. And again, the data showed the same, where the cells were bigger, significantly bigger in risk allele carriers compared to control group. And again, only in females, not in males. But this doesn't really tell us much about KLF 14 functional roles. So uh, there was nothing really published on KLF 14 before we started uh, doing our research, except that it belongs to a uh, conserved family of transcription factors, and the whole family have, uh, has 17 members in total. Some of these members have been studied more in details, and they have been shown to be impo uh, important in many biological processes in cells, including proliferation, differentiation, apoptosis, and cell development. So again, what does this tell us about the role of KLF-14 in adipogenesis or adipocyte side development? So this is like schematic overview of uh, adipocyte uh, cell development. And each of this, um, each of these steps is actually tightly regulated by set of transcription factors and also adipocyte and lipid-related genes. So we were interested to see where KLF-14 fits in this uh, diagram. So in order to learn about expression of KLF-14 in our uh, adipocyte model, what we did, we isolated uh, cells from subcutaneous adipose tissue biopsies, both from abdominal and gluteal, and we cultured cells in vitro, uh, and also then used this information later on to do knockdown studies in order to gain more knowledge on, on function of KLF-14. So the way we do adipose tissue biopsies, it's like needle biopsy. Uh, it looks like a small liposuction, but we do start with very small amount of adipose tissue, which after washing and digesting with collagenase, we get cells which we can then plate in vitro in our uh, flasks or, uh, or cell wells. And we start with very limited <coughs> number of cells, which then go under the vision and proliferate. And once they become a confluent, uh, they're, and by confluent I mean when cells start actually, when they're in contact with each other, then we use adipogenic hormonal mix, so, and let them differentiate until they become mature adipocytes and start forming lipid droplets. We then check the expression of KLF-14 during uh, whole adipogenesis uh, by harvesting cells every day during development. Uh, and we did it both in abdominal and gluteal adipose tissue, but the expression pattern was similar, so that's why I'm only presenting data from abdominal adipose tissue. Uh, you can see that expression in males was quite flat and very low, which might explain why we don't see the differences in males when it comes to uh, cell size, and we only see it in females. And then we saw that the expression was highest actually during early stages of proliferation, and also later during late stages of differentiation when cells already start accumulating lipids. 
So that's why we decided to continue with female uh, biopsies, uh, isolated from abdominal adipose tissue and look early stages of cell development, proliferation, and also later stages of differentiation. There are different techniques that could be used to look uh, function of a gene, but we choose to uh, uh, knock down this gene by using sHRNA. So what we did first, we checked uh, if we managed to knock down the uh, KLF14. We looked at the expression at day one of uh, cells, and then also at day 14 uh, by qPCR, and saw that the, we managed to down-regulate expression of KLF14 compared to control cells. So then, yes. So that means that basically we want to just silence the gene. So we want it to kind of not to be there, basically. And the reason why we choose this, because you can also overexpress genes so that it's expressed more than in control cells, depending what you want to look. The reason why we decided to have this knockdown technique to uh, uh, downregulate expression is because that's analogs to type 2 diabetes risk allele. If you remember people who have, who are uh, uh, um, uh, risk uh, allele carriers, they had lower expression of KLF14 in adipose tissue. So we just try to mimic the same in vitro in our cells because obviously uh, in vitro models are the best models to do this. Um, mouse model is quite good as well, but in our case it wouldn't really help because they don't have abdominal and gluteal adipose tissue. And when we started this project, we didn't know where to expect the differences. So then we looked proliferation and then we realized that in our knockdown cells, they uh, proliferated uh, much faster. This graph shows doubling time, which means they needed less days to, to double compared to control cells. We then look at differentiation by assessing genes. And the, the typical uh, and very important transcription factors didn't change, like CBP alpha and PPAR gamma, uh, which means that these cells were on the way to differentiate. But then if you look at the lipid-related genes and glucose-related genes like GLUT4, they were all down-regulated in knockdown cells. So we were intrigued by our results, and then we decided to uh, look insulin-stimulated glucose uptake to see uh, what is happening with glucose in cells and realize that knockdown cells were, act uh, were actually uh, the uptake of glucose was significantly lower than in our control cells. The data also were uh, confirmed in a Swedish cohort where they do slightly different method and it's not in in vitro cells, but it's basically done in biopsies taken from people who are risk carriers and control group. And they also saw the reduction in glucose uptake in risk carriers compar compared to uh, controls, but again, only in females, not in males. We then looked the uh, lipid accumulation in cells and also saw that lipids were down, the, the accumulation of lipids was lower in knockdown cells compared to control cells. So 
in conclusion, we think that this uh, futile cycling of uh, preadipocytes, where cells are in knockdown, uh, knockdown cells were proliferating at much uh, um, higher rate. Basically, they didn't catch up probably to differentiate all <coughs> of them. And that's why we could see potential um, uh, failure to commit towards mature adipocytes. Uh, and then also in this uh, probably case, we end up with fewer adipocytes, which then leads to adipose tissue extendability, which we saw in the whole tissue. So we also saw severely impaired glucose uptake, which then restricted uh, lipogenesis. And then again, this could uh, lead to large adipocytes, but at the same time impaired fat storage. And this, again, would potentially lead to spillover of fat to other metabolically um, active organs and lead to ectopic uh, fat accumulation. So this is the first part of my talk. Um, and now I'm going to tell you how it is not that all fat is alike and location where we store our fat is really important and that not all of fat depots have the same or equal metabolic risk because they, are, they differ very much in their function. The most striking differences are between brown and white adipose tissue. Brown adipose tissue is important in thermogenesis and it has <coughs> more mitochondria and it's richer in blood and it is primarily found in infants, but we are not um, working on brown adipose tissue in our group, so I'm only going to concentrate on white adipose tissue for the rest of my talk. So the distribution of uh, accumulation of um, white adipose tissue varies among, uh, among individuals, and it could be like overall coverage of uh, fat, or upper body abdominal subcutaneous adipose tissue, then lower uh, body glutofemoral subcutaneous adipose tissue, and also visceral adipose tissue, which is adipose tissue that we have around our internal organs. Again, in our group, we are very much interested in upper and lower body fat uh, and metabolic health, because if you store your fat around abdominal area, you are more prone to type 2 diabetes. But if you store your fat in gluteal area, paradoxically, you are protected from type 2 diabetes. So we know from our previous uh, research, which was published in 2014 by Pinnick et al, that um, adipose tissue in glute uh, from gluteal and uh, abdominal uh, area have different gene expression pattern and also there are differences in adipokine release from both tissues. So what we wanted in our group is actually to develop in vitro model that where we can study this functional differences between abdominal and gluteal fat more in details. You saw that in my Keller 14, we use primary cells to do that. 
but now we were looking to uh, make an um, cell line uh, and try to see if we can uh, study in cell line instead of always having to isolate uh, fresh primary cells. So this is the slide I showed you the bo uh, before, and the main reason why we are interested to make immortalized cell lines is basically because we start with very limited number of cells, and our experiments um, take a very long time for cells to grow and to reach the number that we can then plate uh, and do actual experiments. So, to, to generate a human preadipocyte cell line, we just uh, use uh, H3rd and HPV16, which are the very common uh, genes to introduce into your cell line, to make cell lines, and different groups have used it for uh, different cell types. But we are aware that there are differences if you're working with primary cells or with cell lines, and uh, Obviously, primary cells are uh, directly from uh, a donor organism. Um, so far, they are the best experimental in vitro models, and they do remain characteristic of normal cells. But with primary cells, it's really um, difficult to obtain them. And every time we want to isolate our primary cells, we have to recruit people who are willing to give us uh, biopsies. And then again, it's very time consuming and they are very susceptible to contamination as well. So again, cell lines, they do come with um, disadvantages as well, uh, which they could really, uh, cell may change over the time and it is unclear how well they represent the function of original cells. But they are very easy to manipulate, they are very easy to obtain in large quantities, uh, and also they are very easy to maintain in culture. So what we did, we decided to make cell lines, but then uh, closely follow uh, and compare them with our primary cell lines in vitro. So first we looked for uh, main transcription factors that we know are expressed during primary cell development and we know when exactly they are expressed. We look at the expression in cell lines and they show exactly the same pattern as what we see in our primary cells. We also looked at the expression of developmental genes, and this point was very important because, as I said, there are genes that are differently expressed between abdominal and gluteal adipose tissue. And for us, working with in vitro models, it's very important that cells do remember where they come from because we want to study differences between the two tissues. So in our primary cells, we look at the expression of genes that we know they will be expressed differently in abdominal and gluteal cells and whole tissue, and that was indeed uh, the same for our um, cell line model. We also followed the morphologically cells and looked at the formation of uh, lipids, and morphologically they look very similar to our primary cells as well, and after two weeks in culture, treated with adipogenic hormonal mix, they do form lipids. Uh, in the end. We also looked some other functional assays, like lipolysis, can these cells uh, 
secrete lipids if we uh, stimulate uh, lipolysis and they indeed do at the same rate as our primary cells and also we look the insulin stimulated glucose uptake which again show exactly the same pattern as in our primary cells. So to conclude we managed to uh, produce immortalized uh, adipocyte cells both isolated from abdominal and gluteal cells which uh, uh, are functional cells uh, we measure their function by glucose uptake, lipogenesis, lipolysis, and we also look at uh, gene expression. And this is quite important for us because it, uh, it, it, it is something that we are uh, looking to find uh, the distinct differences between cells in both tissues that could then potentially um, use for developing target therapies uh, for obesity and related metabolic disorders. So the last um, part of my talk is just to remind you that we talked about genetic um, influ uh, factors influencing uh, adipose tissue dysfunction, but there were environmental factors as well. And during my research here, I haven't been looking at any environmental factors influencing adipose tissue function. But I did during my PhD where I looked at adipose tissue function in At Atlantic salmon, and I'm talking about farmed fish. Uh, and the reason why we were interested in obesity in salmon was due to global, global demand in human consumption, there is expansion of aquaculture as well. And this aquaculture intensification is led farmers to use very high energy diets in farmed salmon. And also, not only that, but also to look for new raw materials, uh, which necessi wouldn't necessarily be found in a salmon natural diet. Together with low swimming activity, because all these salmons are in quite small tanks, this actually leads to increased fat depot in salmon, also variation in fatty acid profile, obesity, and also sex sexual, early sexual maturation. So lipids are the main source of energy in aquaculture nutrition. And the reason for that is, for example, carnivore fish, fish species like salmon cannot handle high level of carbohydrates in they, their diet. Proteins are quite expensive, so farmers are left with uh, lipids, which is quite cheap source of energy. And 20 years ago, the uh, amount of lipids in salmon diet was around 20%, and now it is 50%. This obviously had has beneficial uh, 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 it's, it's beneficial for farmers because it does increase growth rate in fish, it does uh, increase feed efficiency and it lowers feed cost. But this actually is not so beneficial for fish because it does actually increase fat deposition and we are seeing 
um, health problems in salmon the same as they are seen in humans with having heart attacks and dying before they reach uh, market size. The ma major sites of uh, lipids uh, 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 for storage of lipids in salmon are, are visceral fat, uh, the same as in humans, muscle and liver. So this is just to show you how a uh, salmon diet looked in 1990s and how it looked like four years ago. This is taken from one of the largest um, uh, aquaculture companies in Norway. And as you can see uh, today, it's not only that salmon has increased, uh, that uh, the, the, the lipid amount has increased in salmon diet, but also composition of diet is quite changed. And now there is almost 50% of lipids come from vegetable oils. So it's the diet is being exchanged uh, from uh, feeding fish with fish meal and fish oil, with soya meal, <coughs> oil, rapeseed oil, um, which cannot be without any health consequences for fish. Unfortunately, that has impact on us as well, because if you see the level of omega-3 fatty acids, the main reason why most of us, or at least me, eat fish, um, is um, from 2006 to 2015 is half in amount that you would find in fillet, which means that nowadays we would need to eat more fish per week than what was recommended several uh, years ago. <coughs> so, can really fish get obese? Um, in nature, um, overweight fish are, are uncommon because uh, fish generally live in food limited environments. Uh, but farm fish uh, does get obese because of the reason I already uh, tell you and told you, and and the the, the main. Um, lipids are actually accumulated uh, inside the internal organs. And I think of uh, what happened to uh, farmed fish now is basically what is happening pretty much to us with fast uh, food and no exercise. So that's exactly what's going on at the moment in farmed fish. So the question we asked when I started my PhD is, oh, can adipose tissue also play uh, the role in fish health? So there were groups that were always uh, interested in how would this affect humans and do we get enough omega-3 fatty acids? But there were not really many research going on on how does this inf uh, influence uh, fish health. So that's why we started a project where we decided to uh, basically uh, see if fish adipose tissue behaves in the same way as humans and can this potentially lead to the same problems as we see in humans today. So this is the picture of uh, salmon and this white is fat around infant's time. You would never see that in wild fish and basically uh, we had like um, uh, experiments where we found fish of 10 kilos uh, carrying a, a one kilo of visceral fat just around the intestine. 
So what we first uh, looked and in order to convince our financing body was that we compare cells uh, isolated from salmon adipose tissue to human cells and also we compare the tissue uh, um, and also the whole tissue and look at uh, gene expression and found that pattern of genes being expressed in human adipose tissue is very similar to uh, fish adipose tissue and this was our hypothesis that we need to go further with our research and then look more into this. So the first question we had was that does really changing the level of omega-3 fatty acids in fish diet influence fish health? Because if you feed your fish with 50% of soy, of course that would have much less uh, omega-3 fatty acids than if you feed your fish with fish meal and fish oil. And first we thought we should look at the lipid storage and also mitochondrial function because they are responsible for also burning uh, the fat. So what we did, uh, we knew that omega-3 fatty acid in human decreased lipid deposition and also increased beta oxidation. And we have uh, made four different diets. Uh, one is based on rapeseed oil, which on had around 11% uh, of omega-3 fatty acids. There was a control group fed with fish oil, but also we went uh, further and made two artificial diets, which had a very high levels of omega-3 fatty acids, just to see what happened if we push the system in that direction. And we fed fish from weight of 90 grams to 400 grams. So then we looked what happens to lipid storage and uh, we saw that uh, fish fed with all three diets containing omega-3 fatty acids accumulated less lipids compared to rapeseed oil group. But also we saw that fish fed uh, fish oil had uh, a higher capacity for burning the fat compared to rapeseed oil group. We didn't detect any oxi beta oxidation in EPA and DHA group, this artificial two omega-3 uh, 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 groups. And that was a really big surprise be because we expected that the oxidation of beta oxidation of uh, fatty acids would be even higher in those two groups. So what happened, unfortunately, is that we managed to uh, manipulate membranes of uh, mitochondria and they were so enriched with uh, long chain fatty acids like omega-3 fatty acids and these fatty acids have uh, they're really long but also they have uh, five or six double bonds and they're then even more prone to peroxidation because with each double bond in your fatty acid you increase prolifer uh, uh, peroxidation for 200 times. So what happened in these extreme groups is that we completely managed to actually destroy mitochondria. Uh, cytochrome C is very important in um, mitochondrial membrane, but it is known to be prone to uh, oxidative stress. And what happens is basically due to peroxidation of membranes, membrane like form a small pores 
the cytochrome C goes out and starts apoptosis reaction, meaning we destroyed the cells by having very high level of omega-3 fatty acids. But also what is interesting is that apoptosis measured by, by caspase 3 was also increased in rhapsid oil significantly, and that is not due to having high levels of omega-3 fatty acid and peroxidation of membranes is due to something else, which we don't exactly know the mechanism. So in conclusion, no omega-3 fatty acids in diets, like having vegetable oil diets in salmon, increased lipid deposition in Atlantic salmon, and probably leads then to all the health problems that uh, we see happening in farmed fish. But also, including fish oil in diets increase apoptosis in adipose tissue because it is not natural ingredient that should be there at the first place. If we have medium levels of omega-3 fatty acids, like what is seen in fish oil, they will increase beta-oxidation of adipose tissue and in that way probably decrease the accumulation of fat. While very high levels of omega-3 fatty acid in the diet can increase oxidative stress, loss of mitochondrial function, and also apoptosis. So, in conclusion, function of fat. I hope I convinced you that studying adipose tissue is very important, not only in humans, but also in animals. And the, we talked about, uh, and the reason for that in humans is that Dysfunction of adipose tissue leads to obesity, and then obesity leads to type 2 diabetes. When we talked about factors that might influence adipose tissue dysfunction, I only talked about one gene, and there are so many other genes that are, could be included in this uh, picture. I also talked about um, uh, environmental factors, but only one, again, it's one dietary factor that by changing it could lead to dysfunctional adipose tissue. And what I haven't talked about is actually also a very hot uh, area of research uh, called epigenetics, where there is uh, uh, actually a um, combination between um, genetics and environment and relationship between all these factors as well. So in the end, um, I would just like to thank all people from my group and also my boss who uh, didn't care that I didn't have a, a day experience in human sciences when he took me on. Um, and also uh, uh, people from uh, uh, Sweden and King's College who helped with KLF 14 and also uh, my previous group in Norway and of course all volunteers because without them any of this uh, wouldn't be really possible. So thank you.